All right. Good evening, everybody. It's a joy to be with you again. And uh, Pastor fed us tonight. Amen. It was a blessing. And uh, so far, the music's been wonderful. I appreciate so much uh, that song we just heard, but also that uh, that instrumental offertory was wonderful. Amen. That's one of my favorites. This makes you want to be in heaven worshiping him, don't it? <laughs> Think about how wonderful our Father is. He owns everything. He's, he's just a wonderful Savior, and I can't wait just to be there with Him. And uh, yesterday's inauguration made me all the more hungry to be there. Amen? And I'm just uh, just thankful tonight for what God's already done, ministered my heart. And uh, thank you, Pastor, for allowing us. And I don't, I don't like long introductions. Amen? I, I can't live up to the bad ones, let alone the good ones. Amen? I had one guy, he was one of these super duper guys, amen, and he introduced me, and by the time he was done going through all the accolades, I thought, man, who's he talking about, amen, waiting for Superman to come out on stage, amen, uh, we're just nobody, amen, God's allowed us to do a few things, and we're thankful for that, and it happens to be in the area of Baptist history, which is a passion, so when you get to do something you love, amen, and God just keeps pushing you through doors of, in an area that you love so much, it's just a real blessing, so uh very thankful for this opportunity to be able to share these things with you. I want to share uh, with you some history, and I'm not sure your, your preacher really didn't say much about what he taught, what he didn't teach. Um, I don't know. We'll have time to get into much ancient Baptist heritage. My intention was possibly to do a session tomorrow night on the Waldenses and then uh, kind of digress and then go back and try to do some more American Baptist history because there's just so much, and uh, five days, just really eight days doesn't do justice to it. Twenty days really doesn't do justice to it. But uh, <clears throat> so, but what I want to do tonight is uh, try to bring you some thoughts, and we'll ask you for the lights here in a bit, but just hold on if you could. Um, some history right here in your own backyard. And uh, in fact, 78 miles from here uh, started uh, way back in 1755, the greatest revival in American history. And... Uh, you know, we hear a lot about revival, and uh, if, I want you to look real quickly with me at a scripture, and that I thought about this, and how many times we've been in a meeting, <clears throat> whether it was a preacher's conference, and uh, whether it was a revival or a camp meeting or something like that, and how many times we've heard somebody get up and read this scripture, and then wax eloquent on the need for revival. And uh, it's like a lot of things, when somebody says local church, uh, that doesn't really mean anything to me. Uh, my first question is, how do you practice the ordinances? And then that will tell me what your view is on whether you believe that you have jurisdiction in a universal invisible assembly, and etc. When somebody talks about church planting, I want to know, uh, that's great. What kind of churches are we talking about planting? And when somebody talks about revival, uh, there's a difference. And there's an entire, entirely different philosophical viewpoint <clears throat> on what revival we actually need. So there's a biblical revival. And uh, then there are those revivals and moves of God that we can't always understand and that are, that are initiated just by God's divine power, uh, those sweeping revivals. And that seems to be what most guys are talking about. So tonight I'm going to do something a little unusual. I'm going to, uh, last night was uh, uh, a lot of Baptist history. I won't say how long it was, amen, but you all get scared about tonight. But I didn't see anybody leaving afterwards, so that was good, amen. I think a few wanted to leave in the middle of it, but uh, you may have had stubble by the time we got done last night. But uh, I'm, I'm going to try to teach some Baptist history tonight, but I want to kind of couch it in a broader context, and so we're going to have to give you some Protestant history. And, uh, you know, there's so much attached uh, to our Baptist history, revival heritage and such, and so, but in so doing, I'd like to compare and contrast two different revivals. Uh, many of you know that I'm already talking about the Sandy Creek uh, revival that happened uh, just 
right down by Liberty, North Carolina. Here's where it started and then spread uh, to the point where uh, when the Second Great Awakening actually came in 1800, it had already crossed uh, so powerfully into Kentucky that Kentucky was filled with separate Baptist churches, and they're able to receive the Second Great Awakening uh, because by about 1800, this revival had filled Tennessee. Tennessee was so full of Baptists, uh, Knoxville was called Baptist Town, and uh, when the Lanes hit Tennessee, the Lanes and their family and their cousins by the dozens, and then the Mulkeys, others went across Tennessee, and then Kentucky was flooded with Baptist churches. And uh, so I want to talk to you about that revival and I want to try to compare that and contrast that. It's kind of like the Roger Williams scenario we talked about last night. And I hope you left and understood what I was trying to say. Uh, Roger Williams was a good man. Uh, Roger Williams was a very helpful man. Roger Williams was a defender of liberty and a friend of the Baptist. Uh, on the other hand, he never was a Baptist a day in his life, didn't have scriptural baptism, ordination, never started a Baptist church, etc. Uh, but uh, so I want to try to, uh, uh, try to bring things together. Uh, tonight on this and, and hopefully give you some understanding. I told my wife I wasn't going to go long and she said, you just cursed us. You realize that, amen? And uh, that's usually the way it works. But let's look at a verse of scripture here. And uh, most, again, of what I say will be uh, up on the slideshow. Thankful I remembered to do that, amen? I was in Fargo, North Dakota one time and I was three quarters of the way through my slideshow and I said, you'll notice on this slide, they said, what slide? Do you have show? They literally thought I was just preaching from a computer, Amen. And there was no show, amen, so I'm thankful I remembered that. But uh, anyway, I'm sure the sound man would have helped me, amen. Even though I think all sound men need to get saved, I'm sure they would have waved at me or something, amen. They're the problems in our churches, amen. Psalm 85, verse number 6. I'm glad you folks understand my sarcasm, amen. Psalm 85, verse number 6. The Bible said, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Let's pray together tonight. Father, uh, Lord... We know tonight that we need the help of God in our churches. Lord, not just uh, the help that we have daily, but we need your empowerment and your breath and your uh, life-giving sustenance, Lord, to be able to uh, go forward and to do a work in these dark days, these last days. The New Testament describes for us in, in, uh, in very certain terms, Father, we realize we're facing dark days and we need you. Lord, our country needs you. Our officials need to be born again of the Spirit of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would save many of those lost heathen in our Congress and uh, those in the White House and the administration that they're putting together now. Uh, Father, uh, some of them transgender, others just straight homosexuals, and uh, just, Lord, a lot of people just with wicked hearts that need saved. I pray, God, you'd save the lost uh, in our administration, in in our leadership in our country today. But, Father, today we do need revival I pray that you'd help us to understand and to clearly see the type of revival that we can have today if we'll simply obey uh, the Great Commission with complete dependence on the Holy Spirit of God and do it for the glory of God. We can have revival today. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that you'd speak to our hearts tonight, bind all devils and distractions away from this place, and help us to have good understanding, Father, so that as we go forward, we would be refocused and reminded and be reminded and uh, Lord, just uh, be solidified in the fact that we need to birth New Testament churches. And, uh, Father, we need to do it while it is still day, for the night cometh when no man can work. Would you challenge our hearts tonight? Lord, would you lay a heavy burden upon the hearts of these young preachers to get serious? Uh, Lord, to study, to show themselves approved. And, Father, I pray, God, that you'd lead and guide uh, their steps, show them where to be, what you'd have them to do. And, Father, each one of us preachers, burden our hearts, break our hearts. And then all those that are here 
uh, beyond the, the ministry, Father, I pray for each one that has a personal ministry in this world to be a servant and a lighthouse for Jesus Christ. Speak to every heart tonight. God, we give you all the glory and praise for what you'll do now. In Jesus' name, amen. If we could have those lights, I'd appreciate that. Again, just remind you, he didn't ask me to preach, he asked me to teach. And uh, I want to try to bring out uh, something tonight uh, in the lesson. I hope that this will be a help and a blessing to you. And uh, I, again, I don't charge any extra for the custom slides, preacher. I just wanted you to know that. Amen. We've been talking about this thesis of the book that I ran out of, and some of you have been ordering that. We'll make sure we get you those as quick as we can. But American Foundations laid by the Baptists, and again, it's our contention that uh, all the, the, the most important foundations of this nation have been laid by the scriptural churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. We mentioned that in three areas. Uh, last night we started to talk about the political contributions of the Baptists. We watched John Clark, the Baptist minister, pick up liberty, sail it across the ocean, and trench it into the Rhode Island experiment, which became, of course, uh, the fountainhead of all the liberty that we have in the Declaration, uh, of course, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, and then America being modeled after that, uh, free colony. So that's just the first part of the political uh, contributions of the Baptists. Lord willing, we'll have time to get into some more of that. I'd like to visit Virginia, Lord willing, on Sunday, uh, which really, truly has probably the richest Baptist history in America. I've toured uh, numerous tours in New England and been all over the South and the East and the Midwest and, and such. And uh, I will say to you that, that, that Virginia, just like the presidents, the early leaders, the founding fathers, it produced more great Baptist leaders than probably any other colony or state. And uh, so we'll get into, get, get into that on Sunday and try to deal some more with the political contributions of the Baptists. But tonight I want to focus in just uh, one session, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the spiritual contributions of the Baptists. And may, may I just say, as I mentioned last night, and I, I really would like to have time to, to talk about this and prove this out. And I may get into this a little bit tomorrow night. But uh, America is not just based upon, quote, vague Judeo-Christian principles. These are exclusively Baptist principles. Uh, there has been one body of believers that have uh, ever held to these principles, died for these principles by the multiplied millions. And, uh, of course, my wife and I were in Europe just a few years ago. And, uh, again, we were to so many of these places. And I, I lecture a lot in the Donatists. One of the things I got to do a few years ago was be on the uh, continent of Africa and lecture on the Donatists. And, you know, in the 4th century, uh, you find these scriptural churches, okay? So once you think about this, and I, I'm kind of taking a little bit of a rabbit here for just a minute and run it for a while but uh, if you think about this, when the uh, Roman Catholic institution started in 313 A.D., uh, Constantine, a wicked Roman emperor, uh, had a vision, ate a piece of kibasi, just kidding, but he had a vision, uh, go forth and conquer under, under this banner. The banner was the cross. And so he decided what he would do is make Christianity uh, the, the state church. And it, what he would decide to do is try to then capture and force all the pre-existing churches of the Lord Jesus Christ to become a part of this new state church arrangement this new state church monstrosity, which these Gentile nation churches largely uh, were not in a theocracy. They, they understood. They, they rejected replacement theology. They knew the Jews were on hold, and, and the early Christians, the early fathers understood that. And, uh, but what he tried to do was, let, let's try to capture all these Christian churches, and we'll make them then a part of Rome. We'll marry it all together, which is uh, centuries of paganism, Roman culture, and history. And uh, then Old Testament, a twisting of Old Testament theology uh, with a spattering of New Testament theology wherever uh, they, they deem necessary. 
and then just a state church arrangement, okay? And uh, so when they tried to do that, of course, there were many already apostatizing churches, and those churches joined up with Constantine's new monstrosity, and they became really the foundation locally and then broadly for what the Roman Catholic institution would become, the papacy then being invented in the 7th century, ultimately kind of taking hold then, but all the rituals and everything that, that happened after that. But there were some holdout churches, and uh, some of those churches happened to be in, the, in northern Africa, in and around Carthage, North Africa. And uh, that was a group that was called the Donatists. And uh, a little bit later than Augustine, there was the one true Catholic theologian. His name uh, was, Ag I said Constantine, Augustine. And uh, Augustine, or Augustine, he was the one true Catholic theologian. And he wrote a book called City of God. And uh, it, it's kind of confusing, but when you read City of God, for example, and I was very discerning and looking for what I was told was in the book previous to that, and studied it some, and when I got to the end of it, I sat the book down and said, okay, I'm not sure I see what's wrong with the book. So I went back and started the book a second time, which I do with a lot of books. And I, when I read it through the second time, about a quarter of the way in, it was like, wow, that's what he's saying. Because what he was saying was that now uh, the Roman Catholic Universal Institution has replaced Israel. And as Israel was in a theocratic arrangement and therefore had armies, which were indeed the armies of God on this earth, and they went forth conquering under other nations in a time of conquest for centuries, that now this new Roman Catholic monstrosity, capturing all these apostatizing churches and sucking them in, they were the kingdom of God on this earth. And so, you see, Catholicism is kingdom now. It's not Jews get a kingdom, and uh, largely Catholics believe in praetorism. We mentioned that briefly last night. That's this idea that uh, you, you look at Revelation, how could a Catholic get that so wrong in that chapter? Well, it's very simple when you pick the whole book up, and you take it back to 70 AD, and you drop it off, and you say, uh, and by the way, Augustine was the father of allegoricalism, which is uh, they call it spiritualizing today. But he said all these things happened in 70 AD, and you say, well, there's no reputable historian that ever said that every green blade of grass burned up, or 60-pound hailstones fell from the sky, or a smoking burning mountain fell, or creatures crawled up from the earth. And he said, well, that happened in allegory. Uh, it happened in a spiritual fashion when Jerusalem was ransacked uh, and such. And uh, so, but, but that's, that's Catholicism, okay? And uh, so, so Augustine believed that now uh, he was going to try to convince some of these holdouts, which were the Donatists, that you need to come in. I'm getting somewhere, I promise you. But, but, but he said, I'm going to try to make them come in. And uh, so they had kind of a parlay, and they had 300 Catholics, they had 286 Donatist leaders, and they got together, and Schaff and others record this, it's in the Schaff-Herzog Religious Encyclopedia and other places, and uh, Schaff is probably one of the best at this and, uh, in the record, but uh, they got together and they argued, and Augustine got up. And it was just like the left, and I hate to say it that way, but this philosophy is really old that they use. Uh, through great flowery uh, terminology and some wonderful great sermons, he compelled the Donatists through love and forbearance and mutual love and kindness and, and uh, you know, all of that, you know, tolerance is what he was really speaking. We just need to learn to tolerate each other, and you need to tolerate us and, and all of that. And that's what his message was. And, and then the Donatists get up. And uh, the Donatist leaders gave their arguments. And long story short, by the way, you'll find out how long Augustine's tolerance lasted. When the Donatists wouldn't submit and become a part of the New State Church monstrosity, he began to expel them, make their churches illegal, and then burn them to death, ransack and steal everything they owned, and pillage the entirety of the Donatist population. But uh, the Donatists argued, one of their arguments was recorded as thus. The argument was that you cannot have compulsion 
or th there can be no such thing as compulsory religion. Now that's way back in the 4th century. These people held to the same exact doctrine of the scriptural churches all the way back to the apostles and then moving forward and uh, were related to other groups in North Africa and then in other parts of the Middle East and would become a, ch a link in the chain of our Baptist succession. So my point is this. We have traced, John the Baptist gets his head cut off, as we mentioned, your first Baptist is a martyr, amen? And he dies for wanting to preach truth. He dies trying to stand for liberty of conscience and do what God had told him to do. Then the apostles and Jesus, one of the first evidences we have after that are these Donatists. And then you can follow it all the way down through history. One of the things my wife and I did uh, a few years ago was we went up into the Koshan Alps. And we walked those uh, valleys, and we walked those mountains, and we went up into those caves. And I'll never forget when we first arrived at the cave that I had lectured on and written on and, and uh, had shared pictures with for so many years. We finally stood at this cave, and my wife just burst into tears. And I said, honey, what, what's wrong? And she said, can you imagine the sacrifice? As every step we walked, conceivably, there was once blood spattered on those rocks that we had walked on. And we stood at the very precipices where they cast thousands upon thousands of these Waldenses, little babies, pregnant people, elderly people, off of these cliffs and dashed their bodies uh, to, on the rocks below. Uh, we were at the caves where they lit fires and tried to smother the people and they forced them out and one by one they would whop their heads off with a sword and then they would impale spikes with their heads on and light them on fire up at the castle church to strike fear in the common populace. Uh, I, I, my, this was going through my mind as I was walking through those valleys. Every step I took, Alexis Mustan said, there is not a rock in these Vaudois valleys which should not be looked upon as a monument of death. There's not a meadow that has not been the scene of some horrendous slaughter. And so our hearts were broken and tenderized. We went to before that to Switzerland and stood right there on the river where Christian universities will take Christian tours and, and they'll tout Zwingli as he stands there with his sword. And, and as they stand there and listen to only half the story and that bad as it is, uh, right about 300 yards up the river and on the other side there's an Anabaptist marker where they trust these men up with their cockneys over over their elbows, took them out in rowboats and dropped the Anabaptists in and laughed as they drowned in the river, where they chained them together and would push one off the dock and yet another and another would go. And for over a hundred years, the Swiss Reformed Church slaughtered the Anabaptists there in Zurich, Switzerland. We went to uh, the, the, the Lullard's Tower, where they hid the Lullards, the followers of Wycliffe and the followers of Walter Lullard up in these towers. And by the way, uh, you know, John Fox pleaded with the, with the Queen of England and said they'll come a day when England is ashamed of its history. This is a black spot on our history. Please stop burning people on the square. And everywhere you go, whether it's a Tower of London where a man said, well, just a few people, you know, a few martyrs died here. And then they happened to tell me uh, in passing by accident, there were 286 corpses they found under the chapel floor there at the Tower of London. When you go to Lullard's Tower and you say, now where did they torture the Anabaptists? Well, they don't just, they just we don't talk about that very much. I think it's somewhere up here. They, they really don't want to give you any information. They're ashamed of what happened, but we went from jail site. We went to Smithfield where they disemboweled and burned the Baptists. We went to the Newgate Prison where Thomas Hell was one of the founders, the co-founders with John Smith of the General Baptist died in that jail. Uh, where Merton smuggled the message out uh, of that jail, uh, pleading for liberty of conscience to the king and, and you had to decipher it. With, it was written in milk or by, by firelight, by a candle. And by the way, Roger Williams, that made it into 
to that bloody tenant of persecution we talked about uh, last night. That was from a man named Merton who sat in that jail and died in that jail for conscience sake. And so uh, there's this great struggle uh, for liberty of conscience down through the ages as we uh, talked about last night. And uh, when we get to America, uh, there's going to be, God is going to use America in, in, in a very unique way. First of all, He's going to transplant liberty here, amen? And because of that liberty, now the gospel can be freely preached. And we mentioned last night some of the reasons why it's advantageous to have societies where there is full liberty of conscience and religious concernments. And one of the main reasons, again, is so not only can we preach the gospel and freely distribute literature, but when men receive the gospel in that type of climate of liberty, then can we know that they've received it of their own volition and we have not tried to force anybody into the kingdom of God. Well, America is very unique, and there's going to be a great revival that takes place. So let me, let me jump in. I'm, I'm running too many rabbits, and once I, you know how it is when you run a rabbit, you get down the trail, three more run by, and it's just a terrible thing. We're in 1730. 1730, uh, America is in trouble. It was in a poor spiritual state and desperately needed revival. Let me give you a few reasons. First of all, America declined spiritually, due in part to what was called the halfway covenant. Now, let me clarify something. We're going to talk about the Great Awakening for a bit. And I don't believe Whitfield was full of devils. I believe Whitfield uh, did what he could with what he learned, but he was trained. And the Augustinian modified school of theology came to some truths, but never really got a lot of that junk out of his system. Tried to start his own denomination out of thin air. It's like these Baptists that start, you know, they run around with their little certificate in their back pocket and do whatever they want to do. Uh, really, the First Baptist Church of thin air, amen. Whitfield had no authority whatsoever. His authority was Anglicanism, and then he split from that and was trying to start the New Light Movement, and uh, later Whitfield would preach against the demand for order of the Baptists and the Baptists and their scriptural baptism and demand for scriptural baptism. But we have to talk about the Great Awakening for a while. Now, I say all that to say this. A lot of people have misconceptions about the Great Awakening. Number one and the biggie is, this is the greatest revival America has ever seen. You would be dead wrong about that if you really believe that. I'm going to show you that for many reasons tonight. A lot of people also, they're, they're, they're confused about how the Great Awakening started. It's like these bunch of guys just went out, started preaching on the streets. People just started getting saved, and that's how it happened. They went soul winning, you know? And uh, no, that's not how the Great Awakening happened either. The Great Awakening happened because people in the state churches where they had captive audiences, and many times the preacher, having never preached the clear gospel of Jesus Christ prior to that, began to thunder forth the truths of the grace of God and the judgment of God and the flames of hell and sin and how wicked man is and how far separated he is from a thrice holy God. And when they began to do this, they began to do it in these churches that had this, the halfway covenant. Now, what is this halfway covenant? Let's look at this for a minute. This Antichrist system allowed for unregenerate people and their infants to become both baptized and members of the standing order churches, okay? So from the time Winthrop climbs his city on a hill and plants his flag in the Massachusetts Bay Colony and wants to bring his replacement theology in, those churches, no matter whether they were the pure Anglican, whether they were the, the uh, Puritan, those trying to purify Anglicanism, or the Congregationalists, so you have these split-offs of all of this, all of them were involved in this halfway covenant to a degree, some lesser, some greater. Now what this meant was this. You could be a member of the standing order state churches 
and you did not have to be any more saved than the man in the moon is. And so if I can come in and I can join and I don't have to be saved, we'll just come in through the ordinance of baptism. And you see, this is really replacement theology at its heart. Uh, as And, and if you, you can read the Christian Reformed liturgy, and there's a lot of Baptists that are dabbling in this junk right now. You go to Grand Rapids, Michigan, pick up their Psalter hymnal, and you can read from 1910, 1890, whatever it might be, however far back you want to go, uh, and they still believe this today, that as uh, circumcision was the sign and seal of the covenant with Israel in the Old Testament today, baptism is the sign and seal of that covenant. You're brought into the covenant relationship with God, not through salvation, but through your baptism and subsequent church membership. By the way, one thing they had right that fundamentalists don't get is baptism puts you in the church, amen? They didn't even have churches and they understood that, amen? But nonetheless, so understand this now, you've got standing order churches everywhere and they are now filling up with people who are, how, you say, well, I read a book by the Puritan, I thought he may have been, and he may have been. But a lot of this crowd now, they're as lost as a ball in tall weeds. Many of the people in these churches are lost and had never heard the gospel. Now this went on for a couple of generations, and you can imagine these churches now are flooded with lost people. Enter the Great Awakening. Now, by the way, the Baptist sentiment on the halfway covenant was very clear. Remember that guy, William Witter? They went up to Lynn, Massachusetts. They got arrested there at his home. He was always being drugged into court. And I mentioned some of the things he said. And you can, by the way, this is all documented. You can go to Salem, which is not far there from Lynn, Massachusetts, a suburb of Massachusetts, or rather Boston. And if I say something wrong, uh, you know, my wife will correct me later. So you all don't have to. I'm just letting you know that. Amen. I got Noah, you know, Noah on the whale and, you know, all this other stuff I usually have. Amen. Shubal's wife's usually marrying some other man. Amen. When I get into this. But, uh, but nonetheless, in the Salem court records, you can read what Witter said. Why, do, why were they watching this guy's house? And how could they notice three Baptists from Rhode Island there, the island of Aquidneck, traveling up here and immediately know we've got to get to this guy's house and stop this? This dude was always in hot water, amen? Now he'd run his course. Again, he was an old man. I can imagine he was a little bit cantankerous like the average older Baptist preacher, amen? And to hear some of the things he said about this damnable uh, halfway covenant that was in the state churches, he said the baptism of infants is sinful, period. This is all. You can go there and look in the court records at Salem, Massachusetts. He said they who stay while a child is baptized, do worship the devil. Amen? Look, folks, he wasn't backpedaling on this. Why was he so hard on this? Because people were going to hell believing that their baptism had saved them and their children. And so this Baptist preacher thought it incumbent upon himself to follow God and preach truth. Amen? He further said, infant baptism is the badge of the whore. We know the whore is identified in Revelation 17. I was a former Catholic. I'm telling you, first time I read Revelation 17, after I got born again, I could smell the incense. I could see the garments of my priest flowing down the aisle. I could see that filthy cup filled with the fornication and filthiness of her abominations. Because you see, Catholicism says this, Jesus Christ is in my cup. You come to me if you want salvation. That's why it's such a filthy abomination of fornication. When I, uh, there's no doubt about it. I, I preach whole sessions on Catholicism in Revelation 17. There is absolutely no doubt. So what Witter was saying was this. Wherever you find infant baptism, you can trace it back to the mother of harlots. You understand? And so whether it's a child of Catholicism like Anglicanism, whether it's a granddaughter, a great-grandson, whatever it is in all these Protestant denominations, it's all Catholic doctrine. And by the way, when we say Reformed theology, when they say they're Reformed, we're talking about the true terminology is 
Catholic reform. They've reformed Catholicism. It's a modification of an Augustinian dominion theology, replacement theology type system. So you have to understand that. It's not just reform because it came out of the Reformation. It was Catholic doctrine just tweaked a little bit. And that's all Luther ever did, by the way. And that's all all the reformers ever did. How do you know that? Because Knox, Zwingli, Calvin, Luther, Melanchthon, every one of them backed into their own corner. And after a little while, they all started their own state church, modeled exactly after Roman Catholicism. And every last one of them persecuted and up to and beyond murder and torture to a greater or lesser degree, every one of those reformers. But this man understood that. He knew where this junk had come from. Here was a Baptist that knew his Baptist history. Amen? I say amen. I don't give him any chances. Amen. I need to breathe for a second. Amen. Now, same time, these state churches are having trouble. The Baptists are in trouble as well. Why? Calvinism was spreading like wildfire. Say, what's wrong with that? What's right with it? It's the doctrine of man. There was no Calvinism. I discussed this last night in depth. Gave some documentation. It's in my Waldensian book. There was no Calvinism on this planet. Now, it was there in its seed form, in its embryonic form. Augustine was the fountainhead of that. But in full bloom, nothing until John Calvin came on the scene. And Baptists are not inherently Calvinists. I'm not going to give that whole dissertation. I gave that last night. Amen. Calvinism. Super hyper-Calvinistic expialidocious. These people are on a dead end road, man. Amen. It is quite atrocious. This idea that God would ever create somebody just for the purpose of casting them into hell. What do you do with Romans 9? What do you do with 10? I, I read them in their context. And I understand that in those chapters, God's not trying to narrow down salvation to an elect few. He's saying, how dare you say that I've made you a certain way and I can't do what I want to with other people. He's in essence saying, the argument is I have a universal offer of salvation and it's not to the nation of Israel to say God can't offer to the Gentiles. And once you begin to realize he's talking about the nation of Israel. He's not talking about individual New Testament conversion. All of a sudden, the whole book begins to make sense and the whole Calvinist mantra begins to crumble before their eyes. But they don't like uh, the proper hermeneutic. Amen? And if you don't understand, young preachers, what a hermeneutic is, you better figure that out. Amen? What I'm telling you is there are rules to interpret this book and they are intrinsic to the book itself. And we have no right whatsoever than to follow uh, those rules that God has given us. And they must be employed consistently. Historicity, grammar, context, uh, uh, literalness, uh, the rule of logic, the rule of inference, following the example of Jesus who spoke of everything he ever spoke of in the Old Testament quite literally. He talked of Jonah as literally. The creation was literal. Everything Jesus said was completely literal. And when you employ that kind of hermeneutic, you will always come up with the book of Romans, God dealing with the nation of Israel on how jealous they were and how wrong-headed they were about Him offering salvation to Gentile nations. That's why He says blindness in part, in part has happened to Israel till the time of the Gentiles. That's the whole context of all those chapters. I see Calvinists as like they don't understand this thing of context. But you and I understand line must be upon line. And precept must be upon precept. So there's your immediate context. And then he says, here a little and here, there a little. There's your broader context in comparing Scripture with Scripture. We get that. Amen. So I'm just, I hate Calvinism so bad. It's disgusting. It's sickening. It dishonors God. And it keeps, and I'm going to tell you what. This, this Burkhoff guy, where all this garbage comes from, he teaches literally that... Uh, oh man, I don't want to teach on covenant theology tonight. I'll never get out of here. If you are in the legal arrangement with God through your election, whether or not you ever get saved, nonetheless, as long as you've legally... The, the, the uh, elect and their children all still go to heaven. 
I'm just telling you in a nutshell, and I can prove this to you in about 47 different sessions I do on this, literally, uh, that, 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 that what he is saying is this, there's a, a relational side and a legal side uh, to salvation, and as long, in other words, you can live your life as a heathen, never even know that you are one of the elect and still go to heaven, drink beer, I mean, guzzle liquor, smoke dope and all that, and still go to heaven, as long as your parents were elect, as long as you're in an elect church, as long as you're in a Calvinist church, the junk stinks to high heaven. I know it's in vogue on the internet, and I know they've got some scholars that wax eloquent, and they're very fluent in the way they can talk about it, but it still stinks, and it's garbage theology. Hallelujah, amen. I'm not here to preach on that, amen? Calvinism was coming into Baptist churches just like it is today, and it was hurting them and killing their evangelism, and it always will. I know Calvinists, they still support missions. Give it a little while. See, theology is the engine that runs life. And sooner or later, so how do you know that? Look at what Paul believed, and then look at what Paul did. We can give you a million examples. Sooner or later, what you believe is what you're really going to act upon. And if God's done everything, and there's no point in me going out, then sooner or later, that crowd that's trying to prove you can still be an evangelistic Calvinist, they all die on the vine after a while. Because it's a dead-end road, and they just haven't gotten there yet. Mark it down. All right. The Great Awakening begins. Jonathan Edward. Everybody's heard this guy. Time's already getting away from me. Uh, we all know of sinners in the hands of an angry God. So this man is a, is a visiting pastor at the parish church in Enfield, Connecticut. And there he has a captive audience, as we mentioned, people who were never saved. And he begins to preach messages like sinners in the hands of the ang an angry God. Somehow we think that's the only sermon he ever preached. He preached much like that all the time. Hell, judgment, God is holy, man is wicked, all those things. You know, our sin nature. And he preached on that. And people begin to get gloriously saved under his preaching. Now, this would be the equivalent of just a thunderous evangelist going down to the Catholic institution with two or three hundred people on Sunday morning, and I mean just wax and eloquent with the power and demonstration of the Holy Ghost on them about hell and the judgment of God and how desperately they needed to be saved. This is the context in which he was preaching in to a bunch of religious people. Well, revival began to break out under the ministry of Jonathan Edwards. He preached on the new birth. He preached complete surrender to the Holy Spirit. This fire caught on in at least 20 other of the standing order or state churches. At the same time, the Baptists also were being stirred in their congregations. Now, uh, you, some people may question, why would you talk about Jonathan Edwards in such glowing terms? I'm trying to be honest with the historical record. I don't have all the answers as to why God used this man, as to why God used Whitfield, and I do believe that God used Whitfield for a specific purpose. Now, I heard a historian who said this, and this was a long time ago, and I think I read it in an old history book, but he said the Great Awakening was uh, really, uh, it's hard to believe that it wasn't of God, because it was like God simultaneously reached down out of heaven and grabbed a hold of two separate continents across an ocean and shook them to their heart of hearts at the same exact time. Be inconceivable that a revival just happened to break out here that, that was uncontrollable and one in England begins to break out and they're the same. Uh, these guys know each other and it all works and then they end up working together. No doubt God was in this, but again, I don't have all the answers. I don't know why God used a woman as an Old Testament prophet. I don't know why he had a donkey talk. I don't know why he took a fish for Jonah. I don't know a lot of things, but I know that God used these men. And uh, for the truth that they were standing in, God always blesses his word. We understand that. Amen. Now, I'm not going to go become an Anglican because these men saw some converts. Amen. It's like this. If a dog's barking for Jesus, I'll throw him a bone. But if you think you're going to find me in his doghouse getting fleas with him hanging out, it's not going to happen. Amen. 
And so I'm thankful for every soul that got saved. And nonetheless, he had problems. Okay, let's move on. Then comes this guy, George Whitfield. Whitfield, you say, man, he looks like an Anglican priest. Yeah, I wonder why. He was ordained in 1739 as an Anglican priest. But uh, uh, let me just, I have to give you what it says here because if I don't, I'll just keep running my mouth and go off track. He was born in Gloucester, England, 1714. Gragged, he was wicked in his youth. He could run with the most wicked of them. Attended Oxford University. And there it was that he met a couple guys. Maybe you heard of them, John and Charles Wesley. He met the Wesley brothers there, and they all joined this holy club. They had already been members of the holy club. Now, the holy club was like this. It was a bunch of religious guys, many of them lost, that were seeking to have a better relationship with God. They truly had, had aspirations and, and, and a good heart or a good idea. I guess I could put it that way. Amen. Nobody's heart's good. No man is good. Amen. But they wanted to, and they didn't understand salvation. So uh, the Wesley brothers had uh, supposedly gotten saved at this time. And so it was that Charles uh, Wesley handed a book to Mr. Whitfield, and Whitfield was confused about salvation. And he read this book called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And upon reading that, Whitfield was very troubled. And he went on for several weeks and even months struggling about whether he was saved or not. Ultimately, he came out on the other side and got gloriously born again. And when he got born again, you couldn't keep his mouth shut. He just began to preach. And he wasn't preaching what the Anglican church wanted him to preach. In fact, by August of the very year that he was ordained, in 1739, they denounced, the Bishop of London denounced him. He was no longer able to speak in their church buildings at that time. He's going out preaching everywhere. And now this didn't bother him very much. And the reason is <clears throat> their minuscule buildings or meeting houses couldn't hold the crowds that were coming to listen to this guy's preaching. It was astounding. Those that heard it said it was amazing. They never heard a man speak like this before. And they were in dead religion. And now they saw a man who was totally surrendered to God with what he did know and was seeking truth as much as possible. And there was an anointing upon his life. The old ladies used to tease him, or the elderly women, I should say, amen. And uh, in the, I call them old ladies because they were against him, amen, I guess. But, uh, but elderly, elder, anyway, i got to move on. So they teased him. They said, hey, look at the kid parson. Isn't he cute? Look at the child preacher. But their mouths were stopped when they heard him and they begin to come under conviction. Uh, the mockery immediately stopped and his age no longer became a factor because there was a power of God upon his preaching. And anyone that's ever studied his life, read it, read his own writings, you'll have to agree it's unexplainable. And I, I'm not here to defend him or put him down. I'm just telling you, God decided to anoint this man and use him. Amen? He was soundly converted. And when he began to preach... He preached, first of all, his preaching on salvation. I want to clarify that. His preaching on salvation was biblical. He preached, you must be born again. Have you heard the old uh, joke? And it, it literally happened. He was asked oftentimes, why is it all you ever preach is you must be born again? And he said, sirs, that's very simple. It's because you must be born again. Amen? And so this was his heart conviction. He preached. Who can argue with that? Amen? If the Catholic priest starts preaching you must be born again, he's giving it right out of the Bible. Praise God. He probably won't be a Catholic priest very long. Amen? But nonetheless, this is what his preaching was on salvation. He also had an anointing. It was said that many uh, wept exceedingly and cried out under the word of God 
uh, as he preached the Word of God. So there was an anointing that was evident upon his life. He was pointed and loud. Benjamin Franklin testified that his sermons could be heard clearly from a mile away. And you saw last night there that picture of the Boston State House, the modern one they use today, right there on the top of the Boston Commons. Several years ago, I had the privilege of walking a group up the Boston Commons as I was lecturing and teaching history and such. And, and I stopped there and I said, I want everybody to stand here and just look up the hill. And they thought I was crazy. And I went on a space and went up to the top. And I began to yell, uh, you must be born again. I began to preach off the top of the hill. I said, I want you to imagine 30,000 people covering this grass and Mr. Whitfield thundering from the top of this. The governor saw the move of God so powerful on his city that he followed him for 40 miles on horseback out of town begging him to come back after this revival had literally flipped Boston on its head. The, the population was 15,000 or over 30,000 people standing there. Well, this was the ministry of Whitfield and Franklin went to some of these massive crowds and he said that Whitfield had such a persuasive power and uh, that, that when he went he was raising money for for, for Wesley's Orphanage in Georgia. And he said that I always emptied my pockets when I went. And uh, But he said, but one night I determined to leave my purse at home because he was so persuasive in, in, in getting you to give money to these causes. And he said, but, but, but it was such a persuasive address that he gave, I turned to a perfect stranger and borrowed the equivalent of about $5 to put in the offering plate because this man just had a way of getting to the heart of the matter with people. In addition, he was very animated once while preaching on the soul of man, being tossed on life's troubled seas, an old seaman jumped to his feet and cried, To the lifeboats, men! To the lifeboats! He, he felt like he was out there. As Whitfield may have said something like, uh, Your bow is smashing against the waves of the devil, and at any moment he'll take his ugly hand and smash your bow and drag you down to the deepest hell. And just about that time, this man jumps up, feeling like he's in there. He was a master of the illustration and had the ability to bring the Word of God to life. And so in that sense, uh, he, he was greatly used of God. Well, Whitfield comes to America. A lot of us think about, well, he preached in England. I knew that. And I thought he preached here in America too. Well, everywhere he went, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, England, Bermuda, Portugal, he saw multitudes of people saved by the grace of God. This was not a fluke in England. It wasn't just something that happened in England. It worked real good in America. His, wit, his ministry was anointed by God. He also preached in America. In fact, he took a total of six trips to America. He preached all over America with much success and many converts. For example, in Philadelphia, God moved so greatly the whole city was in an uproar. Now we've seen Philadelphia in some uproars recently. What did God we'd see this kind of uproar again? Amen? Uh, New York, he was forced by the Anglican church out into the countryside. He went out into those muddy fields long before Woodstock ever took place, amen, and preached the glorious gospel to thousands upon thousands outside of New York City. In Massachusetts at Jonathan Edwards Church of Congregation, it was said was melted by every sermon that he preached. In Connecticut, you preachers will appreciate this. It gives me a backache just reading it, amen. He preached over 175 times in Connecticut in 75 consecutive days. Now, you say, well, that's okay. I mean, a little 30-minute, you know, Sunday morning message. No, we're talking about a man that preached so loudly you could hear him a mile away. That in and of itself is a huge exertion of your energies. 
But he also preached with no clock and no concept of time whatsoever. He may preach for two hours. He may preach for three hours. He's going to preach until he's done. He's very animated. And so he's a ball of sweat, waving his arms and pleading with people and ranting and raving and and begging them to come to Christ. And then afterwards, they dry him off, maybe give him a little bit to eat. He mounts a horse, goes 10, 20, or 30 more miles, dismounts, and does it all over again and does this two and three times a day for a hundred. 175 consecutive days just in one place. Uh, Unbelievable. Amen? Or 75 days. Connecticut summary, what happens when you do that? At least six towns saw great revival. Amen? And then also, Lumpkin stated in a brief six-week period, you want to summarize the Great Awakening in New England? He said the religious climate of New England was changed. Lumpkin is a Baptist historian, but here's his admission. New England was changed because of this move of God. Now, he preached all over America, as we said, with much success and many converts. Such a large number of those saved joined up with the Baptist, though. He stated, all my chickens have turned to ducks. In fact, I've got a cute little video on my YouTube channel. It's my wife standing in the old South Presbyterian meeting house in Newburyport, Massachusetts, Whitfield's pulpit, and she's saying, all my chickens have turned to ducks. It's a two-second video. I threw it on there just to harass people. Amen? But, uh, Now understand, when he said this, here's what he was saying. He said, first of all, all my chickens. You know, a lot of people got saved in the Great Awakening. Here's what happened. They said, wow, Mr. Whitfield's right on on several things, but I noticed here this in the Bible, and he's not right on that. And maybe they came across a Baptist, or maybe they just started to ask around, well, that's what the Baptists believe. Well, I see here Whitfield teaches it right here, but, but over here in the Bible, I see that he doesn't have that right. And so all of these converts, that many of them were joining this New Light movement, some of them were starting, quote, New Light churches, uh, but, but a lot of them said, hey, we're thankful Whitfield preached the gospel and we got saved, but the Bible makes us Baptists. Amen? Now, this is not anything new. One of the greatest things I like to lecture on is the life of Adoniram Judson. And Adoniram Judson went through and gave a huge dissertation on how baptism cannot possibly be by sprinkling, whether it's in the Greek language or whether, uh, you know, whatever it is. And, and, but anyway, so notice, he said, all my chickens have what? Turned to ducks. Now, there's a reason he used these animals. We look at this, by the way, he wasn't saying, that's cool, all my chickens turned into ducks, isn't that a miracle? No, he was saying, it's terrible. All my chickens I've hatched, they've now become ducks. Now, why would he be angry about that? Well, you understand, chickens like a little bit of water. They'll drink out of a little dish, or they'll put their face down in the creek, or whatever. But, But you know, ducks are different now. They immerse under the water. And theologically, that is exactly the statement that he said, all the people that I I wanted to Christ, they've now joined up with the Baptists. He wasn't happy about that, amen? I don't have time to to give you the history, but he would later criticize Shubal Stearns, criticize the the Baptists and their demand for order and what we call the normative pattern of scriptural baptism, uh, making a member of a church and authority and all those things. But nonetheless, this is what was going on with a lot of those converts. Now, just a couple quick pictures. There's the Old South Meeting House. Presbyterian, this is what Whitfield ended up, Presbyterianism. There's a cenotaph inside, and if you go behind the pulpit, you'll see a, a stone set of steps, and you go down to Whitfield's grave. He's buried underneath uh, that pulpit there. And just let, me, let me tell you, this is crazy. Uh, we appreciate revival heritage just because it even has a, a connection to our Baptist heritage, and it does. And, and but we appreciate it in, in so much that 
those that are Presbyterians, this is their greatest guy ever. Name a greater Presbyterian. Okay? I mean, this is our greatest guy ever, their champion, and the whole thing was collapsing. You see that fresh wood there? Bought and paid for by Baptists. Because it was going to cave in. The Presbyterians don't care. Just Whitfield's grave. And that sign back there? Bought and paid for by Baptists. I'm just saying it's frustrating when you go there because it's like, yeah, there once lived this cartoon character named Whitfield, but don't let anybody know. You know, like that. It's terrible. And so it's frustrating, but nonetheless, uh, this is Whitfield's grave. And yes, that is his skull sent away, deconstructed, put back together in a preserved way. I have no idea who did it, why they did it. Uh, I was there one time touring around uh, Devil's Birthday Halloween, amen, and I threatened to put some glow sticks behind it and turn the lights out just to tease the men, amen. I think it's kooky, man. I don't know why you'd put your skull, amen. John Corbley has probably the greatest epitaph, Baptist epitaph I've ever seen. Uh, Death, thou hast conquered me, I by thy dart am slain, but Jesus Christ will conquer thee, and I shall rise again. Amen? That's a good one. This here, kooky. Amen? Nonetheless, that's Whitfield. What about his legacy? He has a kooky grave, number one. Amen? He was the most traveled preacher of the gospel up to his time frame in history. He preached untold millions and to over 100,000 people at one time. He crossed the Atlantic six times. Now, these are huge things during this time frame, by the way. He preached in nearly a dozen countries. He had great success everywhere except one place. Now, when I mention this place, don't throw rocks at me, amen? That place is North Carolina. When Whitfield came to North Carolina, I don't know what if it's stubborn people in North Carolina, amen? I don't know what it is. But, he, but, but God opens and God closes doors. And God was done opening doors for Whitfield. So when he comes to North Carolina... Very few people show up. His meetings are not packed out like they were. The masses aren't there. It, nobody's receiving it. Very few people are getting saved. And in fact, he gets so frustrated that when he's about to leave, he may as well just, and may have even, we don't know, but clapped his shoes together and left saying, I washed my hands of this place. We do know this. He recorded this in his journal after a seeming failure. Whitfield recorded the following prayer in his journal. Oh God! that thou would send forth a John the Baptist to preach and baptize in the wilderness. Now, we appreciate prayers that you can see prayed in history. You travel a little further and you continue to study your history, you find them answered. Amen? I think of Whitfield, or, or rather uh, Tyndale, Lord open the King of England's eyes. We've been enjoying the answer to that prayer for 400 years. Many examples we could give. And, and you know, this prayer was going to be answered. Now, I've often wondered, should he have listened to a Baptist preacher in the sense that Baptist preachers always say, Pray specifically, because God will answer sometimes the way you pray, and you may not like it. Well, he prayed for a Baptist, and I thought, maybe if he had it to do all over, he'd say, God, send a new light down here. God, send a, a Presbyterian fireball down here. But he prayed for a Baptist, and a Baptist he would get. Amen? Six years later, as Whitfield himself preached the sermon, God answered his prayer, and a man was converted. This man would become the John the Baptist he prayed for, who would minister in the dry, cold south. I mean that in a spiritual sense. It was a graveyard. Amen? A man called Shubal Stearns. If I call him Shubal Stearns, my wife will get mad. If I call him Shubal Stearns, my son will get mad. I'd, so I don't know really how you pronounce it. We'll find out when we get to heaven. But he's a man called Shubal. Amen? This introduced Shubal Stearns and the separate Baptists to America. This was not 
uh, kind of the founding of a new denomination out of thin air. You'll find as we get there in a moment that Stearns both had biblical Baptist ordination and biblical Baptist baptism, but they rose up in a time of the separatist movement. The New Light Movement, there's another terminology for it, that was just simply the separatist movement. And so when these Baptists came on the scene in the midst of this great awakening, they weren't the rigid, hard-shell predestinarians like the particular Baptists in the Philadelphia Association and others. Uh, they weren't the Arminian Baptists, but they were a more modified, kind of like a Biblicist Baptist, like us, amen? They believed in the sovereignty of God, but believed that with our last dying breath we should trust Him and depend on Him and preach the gospel to every creature. And they understood that the, the uh, Great Commission was far more than just preaching open air and getting a bunch of masses of, of people saved. It was seeing them saved by the grace of God, gathering them together, scripturally baptizing them, organizing them into New Testament churches. They believed the whole gospel of Jesus Christ and they attempted to execute each and every part of it. Well, what about these guys? Rough sketch of Shubel, quickly. Born in Boston, 1706. He moved to Tallinn as a child, was saved under Whitfield, and then right after that he becomes a pastor of one of those New Light congregations. But, guess what? Had a guy not too far away, one of those Stickler Baptists. Maybe you heard about those people, amen? They demand that everything comes right out of this book, amen? And uh, it was, as you'll notice, Wade Palmer, a Baptist minister, then pastoring in Stonington, Connecticut. Uh, by the way, anyway, I, I, I won't run that rabbit, Amen? He challenged him to study the issue of scriptural baptism. Stearns went to the Bible, and guess what? He realized he had not been scripturally baptized. He further realized that what the Baptists believed on many issues is what he actually believed. And so it was that Stearns studied the Bible, became convinced of Baptist principles, and submitted to the Baptist baptism of Wade Palmer in 1751. By the way, this church has a lineage back to Valentine Whiteman's church that was there in Mystic or Groton, Connecticut. He has a lineage all the way back to England. His great-grandfather was the last Baptist martyr burned at the stake in 1612 uh, there in England. And so this has a lineage way, way back, amen, this church that he received as authority. So a lot of these churches in the South, although, although many of them are Southern Baptists at this point in time, and many of them have dropped the ball theologically, the foundation that was laid here that shaped a nation had authority that goes back about as far as you could possibly trace it uh, through this scriptural church. So he was ordained to the Baptist ministry by preachers Wade Palmer and Joshua Morris in 1751. After pastoring in Tallinn for about three years, he became discontented. So then he pastors a Baptist church, okay? And he's pastoring there in Tallinn. People are leaving because there's places the gospel's not been preached or barely been preached, and he wants to get to a field where there will be some people that will hear the gospel. His brother-in-law is now working among the Indians at the head of the Susquehanna River. Uh, his name is Daniel Marshall there in northern Pennsylvania and into, up into New York. And uh, so he wants to leave. God is dealing with his heart. And so it was that in August of 1754, about a dozen Baptists left Tallinn. They journeyed southward. They get to Virginia. And there it was in Hampshire County, Virginia, where Stearns is going to receive some letters. And basically the letters are going to say something like this. One of them specifically said, Sir, will you please come and preach to us? We know that we've heard that you're there, and we'd like you to come to North Carolina. People have to ride 40 miles on horseback just to hear one sermon from a Baptist minister. He felt as though this was his Macedonian call. And so indeed... They continued southward, still not knowing exactly where the Lord would have them to start the church. 
So they minister in that area, and they travel south, and they reach their final destination in the fall of 1755. The place was called the Sandy Creek area. If you know where Alamance is or Liberty, you're just right there on top of the Sandy Creek area, that region in there. This was a crossroads at the time. And Stearns had this pattern, things he was looking for, because if you're going to start a church, there's some key elements he believed ought to be there. First of all, this was a crossroads, not so much today, but it was a major crossroads then. So if people get saved, now you've got converts, that's your foundation for the church. If there's crossroads, that means future growth, lost people coming through that may settle in that area or get saved as they're traveling through at least. And then he was looking for things like water. If there was a good place to build a church building, if there was ample wood and there was water both for baptizing and for common usage, this would be a pretty good area. Now, you'll notice in a lot of these old churches, and I've been to hundreds of them, probably two or three hundred across the south that really came out of the Sandy Creek, starting with Sandy Creek and following those churches all across the country. And uh, many of them, if you go down back, you'll find uh, an, an old creek bed. Some of them are dried up now. Some places the creek shifted over here many years ago, but you'll find the old place they baptized. And there's some really cool stuff at some of these old churches. But again, they were looking for water, and that's what they found here. So this would be the first church plant. I don't think Stearns had any idea what was about to happen when he first land here, landed here. Again, the great revival was about to begin. This is the journey of the separate Baptists. Okay, let me move on quickly. This is a depiction of the first service of the Sandy Creek Baptist Church. Now you'll notice they didn't have much to start, amen? Uh, by the way, I'm thankful, praise God, that God can take care of you if you go to start a church, amen? And I'm, I've seen God's hand move mightily. Brother Beller used to joke a lot, and he was probably the first one that said this, and then I picked it up, and we both started saying it, but those rocks out front, there's this paved parking lot. I mean, you've got to have one of those if you're going to have a good church. And uh, let me see, uh, then this fellow here on the left, you're there at Rifle Club, amen. That, they have that on Saturdays. No, uh, there's a lady back there raising her hand. She don't even have a question. They must have had a Christian school, amen. And uh, anyway, there's a lady with the babies. That's the nursery. And then back there, that's their family life center, that big mound of dirt back there. Amen? You go back under the shade trees. Truth is, they had nothing. They had no money in their pockets. They had a King James Bible and a burden from God to go and to do something for the Lord. And man, was God going to breathe upon this place. Upon arriving, they built a simple meeting house. This is the existing one today. This is the 1802 meeting house. Uh, the 1755 was similar to this. By the time th they started getting the 1755 constructed, they immediately realized it was going to be too small. Uh, on, on good days, they would have the doors open. Stearns would preach as people begin to come get saved, their families, their cousins by the dozens, and they'd bring them and they'd pack the grounds. And then he would go outside on good days where he could preach to the crowd outside because there was no way their building could hold the people. When the gospel began to be preached in that area, 78 miles southwest of here, it simply exploded. And there's no explanation other than the power of Almighty God. Now, First of all, it was a unique church. There was unusual preaching. It was said that he was a matchless preacher. And the initial hearers couldn't decide which was more remarkable, the content or the way he delivered it. He was eloquent, wise, humble, pathetic, full of faith. 
and wholly consecrated to God. And few men ever enjoyed more of the Spirit's presence in the closet and in preaching the gospel. Love this next one. He was undoubtedly one of the greatest ministers that ever presented Jesus to perishing multitudes and one of the most successful soul winners that ever unfurled the banner of Calvary. He had unusual preaching. Titan Slane's description of his conversion. He said, when the fame of Mr. Stern's preaching reached the Yadkin, where I lived, I felt a curiosity to go and hear him. Upon my arrival, I saw a venerable man sitting under a peach tree with a book in his hand and the people gathering about him. He fixed his eyes upon me immediately, which made me feel in such a manner as I had never felt before. I turned to quit the place but could not proceed far. I walked about some time catching his eyes as I walked. My uneasiness increased and became intolerable. I went up to him thinking that a salutation and shaking of hands would relieve me, but it happened otherwise. I began to think he had an evil eye and ought to be shunned. But shunning him, I could no more affect than a bird can shun a rattlesnake when it fixes its eyes upon it. When it began to preach, my perturbations increased so that nature could no longer support them, and I sank to the ground. That's what you call biblical conviction. Amen? It's not, you'll want to go to heaven, repeat after me. This is God working on a man's heart, bringing him to a place of biblical repentance where he takes sides with God against himself and submits his heart to God. And so this is glorious. Titan Slain became like a son to the Stearnses. They had no children as far as we know. He would go to Tennessee, start the First Baptist Church in Tennessee. It's still an independent King James Baptist Church today. And uh, then the Lanes would be very influential in winning Tennessee to the Lord Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, this is his story. Many other things we could tell you. Okay, unique worship. Regularly, the church people testified. Now wait a minute. That is unusual, is it not? Like pulling hen's teeth to get somebody to say, yeah, Jesus did something good for me. Amen? They weren't afraid to do that. They wept, they cried out, they shouted and rejoiced. They were interested in letting the Holy Spirit have total control to cause men to freely worship. Morgan Edwards pointed out that crying out under the ministry of Stearns was quite normal for the separate Baptists. What happened? Unbelievable growth. Sandy Creek Church grew from 16 to over 600 members in two years. Now, let me just remind you this real quickly, and I know you know this, but think of it. Nobody swallowed a goldfish, not one that we have on record. Nobody put a flame retardant suit on and set himself on fire on the platform to get a crowd on Sunday morning. Nobody jumped buses in a motorcycle. Nobody sewed $100 bills under a bus seat. This was God. And by the way, what you depend upon is what you're going to get. If you're pragmatic and you choose to, uh, to use all the gimmicks and all the gadgets and the mop head quartet and all the other stuff, then that's what you shall have. But if you depend on God, then you get God. Amen? And I'm thankful they trusted God. And this man just preached the gospel, believed in the power of the gospel, and the gospel worked. Amen? I don't really think they understood what was happening. 600 people in two years, it was real. The church began to raise up and send out ministers with unprecedented speed. And this would become the pattern of the future churches that would come out of this. So a lot of these men, uh, they would get saved and like in my life, simultaneously called to preach. Like when I got up off my knees after I got saved, it was like I knew God wanted me to be a preacher. A lot of these men were like that. They'd get saved and called to preach and train in their local church and be pastoring a church within 12 months' time. Now understand, they were already had character. They worked the fields and got up at 4 a.m. and worked till 10 o'clock at night and had to chop down every tree to build their house and fight off the animals and fight off the Indians and everything else. They didn't just sit at home playing Xbox and then go to Bible college four years and go into ministry and wonder why they're a flop. 
They say, well, I don't, man, don't you have to go study for four years? Well, the proof is in the pudding. These characters, men, 25, 35, 45, 55 years of age, they went out and pastored churches which turned around and started other churches, which turned around and started other churches. And so, yes, they were able to do that. And they didn't have an iPhone. Amen. That probably helped. And they probably didn't have a set of golf clubs. Amen. And a big screen TV and all the other things. But you get the story. God was raising up preachers so the revival wouldn't stay here. It would explode across North Carolina into South Carolina firmly up into Virginia, more strongly than anywhere, Tennessee. The separate Baptists are almost wholly responsible for the saturation of the South with the gospel and local churches. David Benedict commented on their growth. He said, Sandy Creek is the mother of all the separate Baptists. From this scion went forth the word, and great was the company of them who published it, insomuch that her converts were as drops of morning dew. This church in 17 years has spread her branches westward as far as the Great River Mississippi, southward as far as Georgia, eastward to the sea in Chesapeake Bay, and northward to the waters of the Potomac. It, in 17 years, has become mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother to 42 churches from which sprang 125 ministers. They move on. All right, miraculous growth. 42 preachers, by 1825, approximately 5,000 plus churches. Say, so what's a big deal, preacher? Well, let me show you what's a big deal and why we talk about this. See all those, well, let's look at the, this is Baptist percentage of all residents. So each little block's a county, you get that. And this is saying that all the residents that live in these counties, okay, so look at more than 50%. See over there, the, the legend there? You see Burgundy. So the dark ones, a lot of them in North Texas. Uh, there's a lot in Oklahoma, over in Arkansas, Louisiana, uh, then Alabama and such. So you see a lot of those. There's probably 50, maybe 60 of those blocks. More than half of the people that live in those counties are professed Baptists. Now, almost the huge swath there of red, that's 25.1. So that's up to two out of four people that live in all those red counties are professed Baptists. The yellow is the rest. That's from 10.1. So up to one in four people are Baptists. So what are you trying to say? Check it out, folks. I don't have my pointer with me. That's what they did. You see that colorful big red? Uh, uh, oval shape right there. That's what they did. Now watch. See all that pale stuff up there, all those other states? That's what we've done since. Think it matters? Here's another one for you. This becomes much more clear. Leading church bodies by 2,000. Now, what this one is saying is, now, not people, individuals, but churches. So all those red counties, what this proves is, that there are more Baptist churches in those counties than any other cult, church, ism, schism, or anything you'd like to think of. So that is a massive saturation. Again, that's what they did. That's what the separate Baptist revival did. And the rest is what we've done since. You see, there's a problem where Baptists, through fundamentalism, through heresy, have lost their ministry model. And they went to trying to be big and have mega churches not understanding God didn't call us to have mega churches. He planted, called us to birth churches. Okay? And so there's a difference in ministry model. In fact, if you don't believe this, the big outfit up there in Hammond about 10 years ago or whatever it was before that, Jay Bird ended up going to the federal pen for whatever filthy crimes he had done. He had a big conference. And the conference title was, Where Are We Going? And he got up and said, We're the last standing mega church. I didn't know Baptists had mega churches. 
That's evangelical liberal uh, uh, terminology. We're never a part of that nonsense. We're not just supposed to stack a bunch of people. By the way, if you put a bunch of honey out here, you're going to have a bunch of ants and insects all over it by morning. So attracting your crowd. God wants us to birth scriptural, biblical, after the normative pattern, churches in honor and glorify Him. But what He was doing was He was castigating all of these thousands of preachers and saying, why don't you have a big church? Now, y'all are going to think I'm a Calvinist, but the truth is, do you ever think maybe God didn't want them to have a big church? Maybe God wanted them to have the flock they had and to obey the Great Commission and to do right. And I'm all for big churches if they're big and their doctrine's right and they're doing right and all of that. But look, folks, we've got to get our heads screwed on straight. It's not about how many bodies we can get in the building because there's towns and cities all over this country and all over this world that have never heard the gospel, have no man of God to love them, no church going to knock on their door, and people are dying and going to hell. So, so yes, this is important. Now let me move on. Now, this is a barn of research, and I, I get that's not where we want to look to, but I want you to understand. That, by the way, this is why the libs think the South ought to just secede and fall into, into the ocean. Because they say this is a religiosity survey. And they say these are the most religious states in the country. Well, let me ask you, how'd that happen? Happened because of the separate Baptist revival. You say, what's the big deal with all this? You say, well, preacher, I think that what we ought to do is we ought to just fix everything through politics. Let me show you something. Check out that big block down there in the bottom right. There's your 2000 George W. Bush conservative voting block. By the way, did you know that when people get saved, they vote right? Amen. I mean, you invest all your time in politics, and I'm all for doing it. I'm not sure votes count much anymore, but I'm all for us getting involved. But, you know, when someone gets saved, they, they open this book, and this book says, okay, Jesus is the life, and He's for life, and therefore I can't vote for a baby murder in no way, no how. And so politically, it straightens them around. Uh, oh, I see here if a man don't work, neither should he eat. I, I guess I couldn't vote for, I'm not feeling the burn. Amen, can't vote for, for that jaybird. And the way he wants to wreck our economy, and he's going to be a big part of this, but, but I'm saying, folks, look, th what they did was they shaped America politically as well. Through centuries of elections, there's been a conservative block of voters in the South that has consistently, until recent decades, voted very conservatively. Why? Because it was the Bible Belt. I was talking to David Cummins. I, I may get to this. I'm not sure if I have this in the show or not. How many of you ever heard of David Cummins? Wrote this day in Baptist history, one, two, and then worked together with a bunch of guys on three. I don't really promote three. Brother Cummins was a good man, but he allowed some Calvinists and stuff to come in on three. But one and two are, are jewels. They're great. He was a great guy. He wasn't exactly like us on, on doctrine and stuff, but he was a good man. He loved history. And he brought the Bob Jones crowd, brought light upon Baptist history in that crowd, which is an amazing thing. And, uh, but I was talking to him on the phone one day, and he said, Brother Alexander, he had a real deep voice. I love to hear him preach on missions. He's like, oh, you in all the world. Amen. But he said, Brother Alexander, he said, the Bible belt should be renamed the separate Baptist belt because it was strictly a Baptist phenomenon. You know what? He's 100% right. And I've quoted him over and over and over. Say, what's a big deal? Well, let me just give you a couple thoughts. This Bible belt, what it did was it gave America a heart of Christianity. As I mentioned last night, we're not a, quote, Christian nation in the sense that our charters made us that. 
You don't have to be a Christian to be a citizen. You don't have to be a Christian to hold federal office or hopefully no other office whatsoever. But that word is being used as an adjective. When people look at America from the outside, they say, well, it's not Muslim principles. It's not Hindu principles. And they see all the churches and all the Christians and they use, say, hey, that's a, using it again as an adjective. That's a Christian nation. Now, how did it become that way? Well, and, and when it became that way, America started living by the golden rule. What do you mean by that? Do you know that we as a nation have sent out millions and millions and millions of untold amounts of Bibles for free all over the world to spread the gospel? Do you know, my friend, that the modern missions movement, once it caught on in England, it immediately was transplanted into America, and there has never been a comparison ever since between England and America as far as sending missionaries all over the globe. Who does that? A country that has the heart of the golden rule because of the separate Baptist revival. We have sent out billions and billions of gospel tracts. In fact, Fellowship Track League alone has sent out over five billion gospel tracts all over the world never charged a dime for one of them we have fed nations uh, literally millions of tons of food every year decade after decade after we're not just the breadbasket of america our midwest is the breadbasket of the world who does that a nation that has lived see america's been good friend and when Donald J. Trump said, make America great again. He knew what he was talking about. Yes, there were some evils, and yes, there were some bad things, but America has done a lot of great things, and thank God some of the evils have been fixed, amen. But th what, how did all this happen? The separate Baptist revival, and, and so much more. We have transplanted democracy all over the world. We did. Nobody else did that. We had to go in and destroy nations under imperative circumstances, only to turn around and almost bankrupt ourselves, rebuilding those very nations that came at us, and tried to destroy us. We saved the world from, from Adolf Hitler. I'm not saying we did it single-handedly, but I'm saying America has been a great nation and it's due in part to the fact that people got saved by the grace of God and Christianity has been entrenched in America and it all started 78 miles from here with the Sandy Creek Revival. Much more I could say about that. I'm about to blow a gasket. Amen? Man, I love our country and it breaks my heart the hard times that we've come on. Here's the original site of Sandy Creek. It's not that far. I hope you'll go sometime. Big monument to Stearns. This is the original site of the preaching. <clears throat> the meeting house is open 24-7, and you can go in there and sign the guest book. Great place to go. We've had services in there all different times of year. I'll be over there again in a few weeks with some preachers over in the western part of the state who wanted to go see it and showing them a few things around the state. And uh, come on in. I'll show it to you. Amen. Got a great little prayer path, at least they did, back behind the property. There's a stained glass window. It was dedicated, I think, in the early 60s, commemorating the Eye of Shubal. Amen. They said he would fix his eye on you, and they, they went with that. They built a brand new building. Now, it's a, it's a Southern Baptist church now. So what you have is when you go on the property, by the way, in 1845, over the issue of slavery, um, pretty much almost everything south of the Mason-Dixon line became a Southern Baptist affiliate. Not, not all of it. A lot of it remained independent. But this church... Long story to it. They got into the missions movement. Some of them took the right side. Some of them took the wrong side of that. Long story short, when you go on, you got the Southern Baptist buildings, the new one they built, and then the cemetery. And then you have over here uh, the old Southern Baptist building. And then up here, you have the Primitive Baptists. So the Primitive Baptists claims the hard-shell predestinarians. They claim they're the original Sandy Creek. The other crowd claims they're the original Sandy Creek. And so anyway, there's just a lot of, lot of stuff to it. But... 
nonetheless, uh, they took this, and, and in their new building, they took this and extracted this window and put it up there and still commemorated it. So it's, it's kind of neat. It's pretty neat to see that, amen? Some of the stuff they, the Baptists do are kooky, amen? But Now, there were scores of separate Baptists that planted churches. Here's the first one, Sandy Creek. And then from there, Abbott's Creek, Grassy Creek, which is not far from here at all, by the way. Deep River, New River, Little River, Dan River. Why? They needed water, amen? So that's why you see a lot of that. And then Southwest, Hall River, Congaree, Stevens Creek, Upper Spotsylvania. That was Lewis Craig's church, the traveling church. Took 600 people down through the, uh, down through the Shenandoah Valley, across the Cumberland Gap, moved them over to Kentucky and transplanted them and then birthed churches all over Kentucky. A lot of his work was what received the Second Great Awakening, by the way. Uh, but anyway, that's a Virginia church that was started out of this revival. Staunton River, Shallows Forge, Lower Spotsylvania, another one, Swearing Jack Waller. Swearing Jack Waller's church was up there. Goochland, that's a mother of many churches, and so on. So, uh, unbelievable growth, uh, long story short. So what you have is, in addition to these standard generation church plants, right out of Sandy Creek, Little River turns around, they start four churches by 1769. So their manner was that the churches they started were church starting churches. This is what Baptists have done, folks. Amen? I mean, all of us, this ought to be our focus how can we be used of God in His plan of the Great Commission? And it is more than getting them saved through the screen door. It's reproducing New Testament Baptist churches. And they believe that. Amen? They weren't perfect. We're not perfect. But they understood what the Great Commission was, and so they fulfilled it. Now, let me just say this. What's the difference in these two revivals? Well, much I could say. I don't even remember what slides I have. I've got five different presentations that are like this. Amen? But uh, I'll say this. The Great Awakening was very short-lived. It was what I call flash-in-the-pan revival. Uh, God breathed. A bunch of people got saved. They fleshed out in a variety of different churches. Many of them became Baptists. But upon the death of Whitfield, it pretty much died an absolute death. It was over. In fact, somebody suggested the only remnants of the Great Awakening that even are alive today at all, if there are any, exist inside the separate Baptist revival. They call this a spin-off revival, as it were. Uh, but but that, that revival there, it was not local church-based. It's not about planting New Testament Baptist churches. Had uncertain or no authority whatsoever. Uh, was trying to start a new denomination out of thin air. And uh, a lot of the preaching that was coming from these men, not on salvation, was false and erroneous. And no doubt some people were led astray. But anyway, so, so what are you talking about? This revival, this one we're talking about 78 miles from here, it was a local New Testament church with scriptural authority that preached the gospel of Jesus Christ in their building and in their surrounding areas, people begin to get saved. They begin to scripturally baptize them with proper authority. One time backwards in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, in case you didn't understand what that was, amen. And, uh, and then they would organize churches, and then those churches would turn around and organize. In other words, it was a local church-based revival. And somebody, again, and I hear a lot of things, but... They, they suggest that every time a church is planted in the south, uh, you, you better check because it just might be still connected to this great separate Baptist revival. That's how deep the roots go on this revival. Now this revival, my friends, shaped America and changed it for generations to come. So there's really no comparison in the two. One was biblical, one was not biblical. Then Whitfield, of course, he didn't like this revival very much. Amen. He made that very clear. He wasn't happy about it. Tennessee and Georgia get their first churches. Just a quick 
side, amen, uh, Georgia. When Daniel Marshall first went into Georgia, we just crossed through there the other night coming across the country. And right there near Augusta, he went across and started preaching into Georgia from the South Carolina side, and he was arrested. And the man that arrested him, his name was Samuel Cartledge. And Cartledge arrested him, and this preacher, the brother-in-law of Stearns, him and his wife started witnessing, testifying to this man, and the man that arrested him for preaching the gospel in an Anglican colony, Georgia, got saved by the grace of God. Not only did he get saved, when that First Baptist Church of Georgia was started, Kyoki, man, those old meeting houses and burial grounds are awesome. Our society had a privilege of redoing their cemetery directory down there about five or six years ago, I guess it was. But uh, nonetheless, that man became a, a member of the First Baptist Church in Georgia, having arrested the preacher who first preached the gospel in Georgia, became a deacon in the First Baptist Church in Georgia, uh, their coyote, and then was sent out. And about 20 miles up the road, you will find the church that the man that arrested Daniel Marshall started out of Daniel Marshall's church. Only God can do neat things like that. Amen? Such great history. The first camp meeting was in June of 1758, and uh, we'll talk to you about a guy from Virginia actually killed a horse riding so hard to get to this camp meeting because he had to get ordained, amen? And, uh, but anyway, uh, I won't read this to you. There's just too much tonight. I've, I've gone a little long, amen? Uh, this, again, this revival was biblical, was local church-based church planning. was long-lasting. It continued for decades in Tennessee, Virginia, South Carolina, Georgia, and Kentucky. It was far-reaching. By 1800, over 2,000 churches, and by 1825, possibly 5,000 or more churches. The Reverend Old Father departs this life, age 65, 16 years ministering to the South. In the confidence that God's fires cannot be put out, he fell asleep. These are just a few examples of the church planting zeal of our forebears. This is exactly what is missing in our generation. America needs seeded in many cases, but in many cases it needs reseeded. For a lot of what this produced, you know as well as I do as you travel the countryside, you start writing down, you won't need much ink, how many churches you could be a member of across the countryside that used to be a part of this. I think about the modern day BBF movement. I would say to you that there's probably about 5% of those churches that would even be considered scriptural anymore. Most of them have rock music right now. Most of them are going universal church. Most of them are changing their Bibles. And so there's many places they just need reseated where scriptural men need to come in and start New Testament churches. This, we need to start doing what these men did. Here's a problem. While we've been enthralled with building mega churches and quit planning churches, here's what's happened. Let me just tell you this. The devil knows the Bible, and I don't want to give him any credit or any glory, but he knows the Bible a lot better than a lot of Baptist preachers I've met, for sure. I preach for some guys, I mean, they can't even spell the word theology. It's ridiculous. You know what they learn? Soul winning, soul winning, soul winning, soul winning, and gimmicks. And the devil, if you don't do what we're supposed to do according to the Bible, here's what he said. If you won't plant your little congregations all over in every little nook and cranny, then I'll do it myself. That's exactly what he's done. He stole our ministry model because we're not using it. He started using it against us. Had a friend down in a holler in Kentucky. He said, I was reading the Word of God one day, looked up, and he's in the backside of nowhere, man, where they pipe the sunshine in and the moonshine out. He said, I looked up, seen a couple of Mormons peddling down the road. He said, I looked up into heaven and said, Dear God, how did he find me out here? They're everywhere. Broken Arrow Baptist Temple just printed me 500. I wrote a... a edited a booklet on the Jehovah's Witness, false prophecies. There's a massive JW place right down where 
we're moving in five weeks to start a New Testament church. And we're going to have to deal with that. Why? Because the devil knows, hey, and what we've done is we left the inner cities and now there's a vacuum and the devil goes in and they're flooded with colds. And everywhere we go, we see the devil knows that he's supposed to be planning his little congregations. Baps are just content to pile ourselves up or just to do nothing. And our Bible colleges have failed. Not that they're supposed to be the leader, but they've failed as well. The average kid coming out of the average, and you name the good ones even, so-called. And you know what they want? They want six figures. And they want a cell phone. They want a nice automobile. And they want everything handed to them, but they don't want to go out and work and start a New Testament church. We should be training our young men. Why don't you pray? Because we know what the commission says. Pray first where God wants you to start a church. If God don't want you to start one and there's one open and you ought to take it, the first thing we ought to do is say, hey, Lord, you gave us the commission. You told us what to do. We ought to start praying first. God, where do you want me to start a church? Amen. Boy, it's quiet. Baptist, aren't you? I thought you were. Amen. So this is what the devil has done to our country. And you know what we need today? Good men raised up out of doctrinally sound good churches going out and starting New Testament churches. Yes, I will admit the devil seemingly has won a great victory. But what shaped our country will still save our country today if we'll go out and obey God, do the Great Commission like Stearns did. Stearns wasn't anything special. You know what he did? He said, we're going to obey the book. We're going to completely trust God with all of our heart. We're going to be trying to live a life filled with the Holy Spirit, separated, and we're going to do it all for the glory of God, and we're going to meticulously follow what the Great Commission is, and God breathed upon it. I would suggest, like all the others in the camp meetings and the meetings, and I'm no better than anybody, I'm probably the least of all, but I, I will chime in and say, yes, we do need revival. But what kind of revival are we talking about? Because what I'm told is, we just need to keep praying and praying and praying, and Second Chronicles 7.14 Hate to break it to you theologically and contextually, which was a promise to a Jew in Jewish, uh, Jewish country about Jewish land and Jewish sin. They say, if we keep praying, God's bounty has to obey what He promised to the Jews and send a sweeping revival. No, what we need to be doing is living in revival by obedience to God and fulfilling the New Testament Great Commission. And at the same time, praying God breathe on our land and send revival. But we don't do that to the exclusion of planting New Testament churches. So many today. By the way, if God's bound to do it, 2 Chronicles 7.14 is a New Testament text. If you really believe that, I know thousands praying that way constantly. Turning from their wicked ways. I'd like to believe I've been a part of that at least at some point. And, and, and humbling myself and turning from my wicked ways and all. Where's the sweeping revival? That wasn't for us. You know what we can be sure of in the last days? We're going to have a lot of trouble, friends. So you can't stand up and say, we're standing with our toes and nose in the rapture. We're at the very end. And I believe great revivals are going to come in the very end. The same book you're talking about, the rapture's coming, tells me that in the last days, we got boatloads of trouble. There's one constant. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Teaching them, baptizing them, organizing them, and then teaching them all things whatsoever I command you. Everything Jesus ever taught me, I'm supposed to invest in them. Everything. So they can go reproduce other churches. Father, thank you for the opportunity tonight to just 
share a few things, Lord, historically and practically. Father, help us to spend the remainder of our days focused on obedience to the Great Commission, glorifying You by being a part of Your plan. What a privilege to know that we can be a part of what You're doing. Lord, again, I, I'm just so burdened for the young men today because so many young men, they, they get to where they're 20 and 30 and they've already bought into another idea, Lord, other than just trying to find out where you want them to plant a church, to help a church planter, to be a part of church planting. God, our country's in trouble. We believe the answer is the Gospel. We believe that. So Lord, would you help us to be a part of it? Breathe on our works and help us. Conform us to the image of Christ. Help us to be surrendered. Meet our every need as we go forth and do your work. And Lord, I pray you get great glory unto yourself in these gleanings of the last days. I pray many churches would be established. And people who would not have heard hear the gospel, Lord, that they would hear it and they'd be saved. And you'd get great glory to yourself through their salvation. Father, bless and help in this invitation. God, I pray, Lord, if you're dealing with some young man about the call to preach, I pray, God, you'd, you'd work on his heart heavily tonight. Help us all to be submissive, obedient servants to you. And if there be one lost, Lord, oh God, I pray they'd not be able to leave tonight. This very gospel we're talking about carrying, Lord, I pray that they would receive it, receive Christ before they leave. Help them to see their wicked sinfulness, your holiness. And Lord, help them to see that you have to judge their sin. But Christ came and died for them. And I pray, Lord, that they'd see the love of Jesus. Work in this invitation, I pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. and we have somebody turn the lights on? Would you bow your head and close your eyes for just a minute, please?